RBA ignores the canary in the mine at our peril. And who's keeping your local bridge from collapsing? Coming up in this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 10th of June, 2022. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader, Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. So the first thing we're going to discuss, Craig, is the uh, consequences of this interest rate rise this week, which... Everyone's um, talking about, yes. Everyone's talking about. Uh, it's going to hit households hard, and the RBA may have miscalculated that. And that may, there may be consequences. And the second thing is just the state of infrastructure in Australia, but this is the infrastructure that nobody pays for. Hardly, there's not, it's not in anyone's budget, and it's all the local stuff, and you wouldn't want to be on a bridge if it does collapse because there hasn't been any money to um, maintain it. So before we begin, just remember, please, to help us get the show out as widely as possible, you know, YouTube's got this tricky algorithm and we need to just rev it up. So like the show, share it, um, if you're not a subscriber, please subscribe. And when you do, click the uh, the uh, bell icon and comment. Um, we're very interested in your feedback. We do uh, read it, and um, sometimes we have time to comment back. So, but please do engage in conversation uh, under the show. Mm. Um, Craig, quickly before we begin, we did a release this week on uh, one of our favourite themes, Australia Post. Yes, uh, and the reason why is because. Um, there's a new government, and what one of the things we learned about Australia Post when we did the campaign the last two years uh, around Christine Holgate is how, frankly, corrupt the relationship between the government and Australia Post is in the sense that successive governments just treat the board of Australia Post as spoils of war. The cash cow. Yeah, and they just put the, like, the, yeah. the, the, the board that, that stabbed Christine Holgate in the back was a liberal was stacked with Liberal Party hacks, and before that it was stacked with Labor Party hacks, and and this has the, the, been the revolving reality of it, right? They they um they they put their friends on the board of these things, you know, cushy job for a while, and that's wrong. Now in the inquiry, the report of the inquiry last year said the board must be restructured, so it's got proper representation on there, a representative nominated by the House of Reps one nominated by the Senate, one nominated by the workforce, and one nominated by the licensed post offices. Mm-hmm. Now, the Labor government, like Labor is now in government, but Labor endorsed that report last year and those recommendations. And we need to make this, you know, the, there's a difference between what politicians are prepared to say and what they do. Well, this one, Robbie, is they've also called for a federal ICAC. So if they don't follow through on their own... Yes. endorsement of their own uh, report, uh, of this um, report, then they should be reported to their own federal Federal ICAC, ICAC for sure. Because if they, if they just put a whole heap, heap, people, heap of Labor Party hacks on the board and don't put in representatives of the employees and re, impl- representatives of the LPOs, yeah. that would be just corruption. It's not, Robert, the question where you... The key here is representation, not the ability and the talents of the people that are on the board, because I'm sure there's some very talented people on that board, the question is, what are, who are they representing? And this is where you get into trouble. If it's going to represent the Labor Party and the Labor Party's ideology yep. and they rep- or the Liberal Party without taking into account that the biggest shareholders of Australia Post are something like $2.3 billion of assets tied up 
is the licensed post offices, yet they have no representation here. It's their own money. It's their own money, you know, and these people are the backbone of Australia Post, yet there's no representation. That is absurd. So have and a I look. I don't think in any, in, in any commercial system you would never have that. Oh, for sure. Have a look at the, uh, the press release we put out. We'll have a link below. And um, there's three numbers there we encourage people to call. If you've been following this campaign, just pick up the phone and make three calls. Anthony Albanese, Senator Katie Gallagher, who's now the Finance Minister, and Michelle Rowland, who's now the Communications Minister. Those two ministers, Finance and Communications, are what they call the shareholder ministers for Australia Post. Right now, they're deciding who the new chairman will be, who the, what the new board will be, right? And they need a reminder from the public, don't stuff this up. We're watching you. Because now that we know about Australia Post in the detail we do, because I, I admit, Craig, I didn't know anything about Australia Post before we went on our campaign. I did. Now we, but I, I had to pay the bills. Pay the bills. So <laughs> I, I think you know, we have a division of labour. Yeah, I know, but the the, uh, the the service from Australia Post was pretty woeful. Uh, you know, up until Christine Holgate came in, and then it got better. But I'm afraid it's slipping backwards again now. But now we know that we're not going to let it go, right? We, mm. we, we are citizens taking responsibility, and this is an essential public uh, national service, and we're going to look after it. So, please, this is a, a shot we can fire across the incoming government's bow. You said you'd, you'd, you endorse this restructuring of the board. Make sure it happens. All right, um, Craig, let's get on to the main part of the show because this is dramatic. Yeah. Reserve Bank ignores the canary in the mine at our peril. Now... Mm. We, we had a discussion yesterday about this. The canary in the mine. This is a great metaphor. I love it. The, other, the, the alternative is the candle in the mine. So they did the same thing. When you took, the miners would take a canary or a candle down in the mine because if the canary, if the candle went out or the canary dropped dead, you knew there was gas. Yeah, carbon monoxide. Actually. Carbon monoxide. Now, <laughs> you got the hell out of there before you killed over yourself. What you didn't do is light a cigarette. <laughs> right, and I'm afraid, Craig, the RBA may have just lit a cigarette. Yeah, but that's if you're talking about methane, the other thing, yeah, yeah. all sorts of different gases. One of the the methane ones will explode on you. Yes, exactly. That's the whole point. Yeah. The RBA may have just ignored the canary in the mine. Now we're going to talk about Martin North, who's of course a friend of our show. Um, I'm going to be on Martin North's show on digital finance analytics, walk the world next Tuesday night at 7:30. So tune in and watch that. We'll have an interesting discussion. But Martin North, as far as I can tell from the media reporting this week, is the guy who's pointing to the RBA and saying, look, the canary's dead, and we'll explain what that means in a minute, and the RBA, yeah, instead of listening, has just lit a cigarette. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the, the interest rate rise in the housing bubble. Now, we've got a new metric for how much of a housing bubble Australia has. Um, Alan Kohler re revealed this yesterday. Australia, the, the total value of Australian housing, Craig, is now greater than the total real estate value um, to GDP of Japan at the height of its property bubble in the late 80s. Japan's got to 330% of GDP. Ours has just passed that. And consider the difference. There's 100 million people in Japan competing for a small amount of land. There's 25 million people in Australia competing for one of the biggest blocks of land in the world, right? Yet we're already at, we're in that stratosphere of what Japan got to before it had the biggest, one of the biggest crashes of all time. Um, so this is, you know, this is something that's been built up by decades of deliberate policy from the government, from the Reserve Bank, from APRA, and from the banks, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
but, it's, but it could only happen by luring people in to the market. So now, if you look at the graph, and maybe we can put it up, of interest rate rises, interest rates in Australia in the last 20 years, you'll see there's a few bumps and whatever, but generally they went from normal rates down to next to nothing. And they've been next to nothing for quite a few years now. Um, now they're starting to go up again. And this is very significant. But when they made the decision to raise interest rates very steeply this week, half a percent is you know double what they would normally do, right, of 0.25. Uh, the, gov the Governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, said this. These are just some fragments of what he said. The Australian economy is resilient. Household and business balance sheets are generally in good shape. One source of uncertainty about the economic outlook is how household spending evolves given the increasing pressure on Australian households' budgets from higher inflation. So he's admitting that's an uncertain area and that's what we're going to be talking about. Then he goes on to say, the household saving rate re also remains higher than it was before the pandemic and many households have built up large financial buffers. So in other words, he's, what he's generally saying, Craig, is that we've jacked up rates steeply but households can handle it. That's what he's saying, right? They have savings, they have buffers. And remember, one of the things they, can, they take into account is everyone's loan, when they borrowed it, was assessed against an interest rate 2% higher than what they've actually been paying. So they take all this into account. They think, should be fine, should be fine, right? But there's another view, and that is what Martin North has been putting out. Now, Martin North, Digital Finance Analytics, he does probably the most comprehensive household survey in Australia. And just to show you how comprehensive it is, the unemployment rate is not based, and I don't understand why, but the unemployment rate is not based on data from Centrelink's computers. It's based on the Australian Bureau of Statistics doing a, a monthly survey of 30,000 households, calling them up and saying, have you worked for more than an hour this week? Mm -hmm. And if, mm -hmm. you, if you have, you're employed, right? Or this month, not this week, this month. Um, Martin North survey is a monthly survey of 52,000 households. So it's very comprehensive, right? Um, and what his survey has been showing is that there was a serious rise in what's called mortgage stress in Australia even before these rate rises, the one this week and the 0.25% a month ago. So I'm going to play a clip of Martin on uh, the Today Show on Wednesday this week, Wednesday morning this week on the Today Show, talking to um, the, uh, what's his name, uh, Stefanovic, Carl Stefanovic um, and the other host about this issue. And just listen carefully to Martin's description of what the households are dealing with. Welcome back. Now, we have some uh, really interesting data to show you on the impact the interest rate rises are having on mortgage stress around the country this morning. Let's start in southeast Queensland. Toowoomba has more than 8,000 households in mortgage stress with big issues also in Ipswich and surrounding suburbs. In Sydney, two of the major hotspots are in the southwest. Campbelltown has an incredible 75.6% of households suffering mortgage stress. In Melbourne, the hardest hit areas include Sydenham and Pakenham. And in Adelaide, it's slightly better, but only just. So joining us now is Digital Finance Analytics Principal Martin North. Martin, this is worrying, isn't it? Because this is mortgage stress pre the, the rise yesterday and the rises to come. 
Yeah, it is worrying because uh, we've seen the growth in mortgage stress over the last few years, but it's never been higher. More than 1.5 million households across the country. That's nearly 43% of households are struggling in cash flow terms, so money in, money out. We survey them on a regular basis and we try to get a handle on what's really going on. Of course, it's not surprising. Mortgage rates are, of course, rising now. People have big mortgages, but then we have high inflation, lots of high costs of living. It's all come together. It's a perfect storm. People are still spending, though, aren't they? And that's only adding to it, um, those supply shortages. When you say mortgage stress, uh, can you define that a little bit for us? Yeah, so what we try to do is to look at the money coming into a household each, uh, each month and then the money going out on you know, those things you have to spend money on from groceries, petrol, etc., etc., and, of course, the mortgage payment. And if there's more money going out than coming in, we classify them as in a cash flow stress situation, meaning that if you go on like that, eventually you're going to run out of money. So that's how, we, that's how we define it. So it's a cash flow measure. So what do you see coming? Is it just going to be, you know, completely shocking? Are there going to be thousands of people losing their homes? Well, you know, you're in stress, which means you have to prioritise your spending. What people are doing at the moment is prioritising the mortgage repayment, but giving up on other things. For example, giving up on dental treatment or uh, perhaps even not buying the kids' clothes that they would normally. So, you know, th there's real pressure on households. They do prioritise their mortgage repayments, and the banks are working with a lot of people at the moment trying to make sure that they keep their homes. But if this goes on, then there is a risk that some people will end up losing their homes. Uh, uh, there's a lot of um, expert analysis around at the moment that says that people are absorbing all of this and they should be able to do so for some time. What time does, do you think that it hits the critical juncture? Well, the problem is if you talk in generalities, then, yeah, sure, it may look averaging okay. But what you find is there's about a third of households that are really fine. They've got lots of uh, financial buffers. They've been saving hard and there'll be no issues at all. But there's another group which really are struggling now and there are a bunch in the middle. The trouble is the people in the middle are going to slide towards being under pressure as the interest rates rise. So, you know, if interest rates go up another 1%, that's a 15% increase in the monthly repayment on the mortgage. So we're going to see more people really struggling. And, of course, incomes have really not grown at all. The cost of living are very strong. Inflation is very strong. So it, 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 it is really a perfect storm at the moment. And, Craig, there's a, for a visual description of that, what Martin's just gone through, um, this, is his, this is his own chart we've put on the front of our alert service this week. But if you look at the, the yellow line, there has been a very sharp increase in, in mortgage stress, mortgage stress yeah. right, up to 43%. That's what he's talking about. He's also um, making the point that it doesn't show up in how much people are in advance on their mortgage payments. It shows up in the rest of their household expenditure, their cash flow because people prioritise their mortgage payments in Australia. So the RBA, in making this decision this week, Craig, they're essentially in denial of this. And here's the question, who to believe, hmm. right? Well, first of all, Philip Lowe, the governor, doesn't have a very good track record. So I'd be a bit iffy about believing him at the best of times. And I'll give an example. Back in November and December, in the statements he put out then on monetary policy when they didn't raise rates, he basically promised the country rates wouldn't rise until 2024 and interest rates would, would stay low. Sorry, inflation would stay low, mm. right? Six months later, that's all out the window. And the problem is a lot of people would have run out and borrowed money on the basis of the government of the Reserve Bank says interest rates aren't going to rise. Well, they now they have rise and by a massive amount. Um, 
Now, on the other hand, people will say Martin North doesn't have a good track record either, and, and for the reasons that also applies to us. Because <laughs> yeah. we've been saying this for a long time. Martin has been, like us, Martin North has been predicting a crash of the property market for a long time. The difference is, every time it came to the edge, to the precipice... They propped it up. They propped it up by jacking down rates, by yeah. dropping rates. Or increasing the first homeowner scheme or... No, not or, and. And, sorry, yeah. Right? They would always increase the, the exactly those subsidies. Yeah. And that had the effect of just getting, encouraging more people to get into the market when the interest rates were low. And consequently, with large mortgages, Robbie, yes. the, the inflated property values, and now as interest rates go up, there isn't any safety buffers left. There's no, there's no means by which people can continue... The other thing is wages haven't increased in the last period of time either. So there's no been no real wage growth, so people Martin are referred stuck. To. Yep. Well, so think about so think about um, this every time. And you, you know, some viewers who under who know Martin North um, and his and digital finance analytics well will know that he's called a perma bear, mm. and that every time it's come close to the edge, he's been wrong. But I want you to consider that, yeah, every time they jack, they drop rates. This time we're at the edge and they've raised them. That's the difference. So don't just, this idea of, of saying, oh, he has a pattern of being wrong. And the RBA being wrong is worse because they have the power over interest rates. Martin North never had. Mm. He's just trying to say this is an inevitability if, this, if, if all things being equal. Well, now all things um, are coming home to roost. Now, so I want to highlight... For some people, introduce you to, the, to a character <laughs> um, named Stephen Kakoulis, the kook, he calls himself on Twitter. He's an establishment um, economist. And he, well, well, let me put it this way. You get this phenomenon, Craig, if people are in denial. But, but in the back of their mind, they harbour a secret suspicion that maybe they could be wrong. Yeah. What they do is they don't admit they're wrong. They cover it up by becoming even more, um, the, these big outbursts, right? And this, this is where, like in Shakespeare, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Because this week, um, this guy, Kukulis, the kook, has launched a vicious um, campaign of attack on Martin North personally. And I'll tell you why. Because Martin's survey is the most glaring contradiction to the Reserve Bank um, narrative. His survey is, because he's the only one who does that kind of work. Um, so this is what the kook, I, I just, I, I'm going to show people a series of tweets. And if you're not on Twitter, you know, enjoy this. If you are, you can follow it yourself on Twitter. But this is, this is the kook. So on the Tuesday night, he was applauding the decision that would have been announced at 2.30 that day to raise rates, right? Um, and he was applauding it with tweets like this. Um, Two-thirds of households do not have a mortgage. In other words, don't worry, it, doesn't apply, it only applies to a third of households. Which is a huge number of households. Really. <laughs> that's, I mean, true, that's the problem. That's true. This is not some small you know, sector of the, 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 the community. This is a huge number of people. I think economists... Actually, the more you read Stephen Kukulis' tweets, and maybe some, it'll come out in this, economists have this way of looking at figures on paper and percentages and, and, and not relating to the fact of what that means in the real world yeah, at all, right? right? So you've just said something there that I can tell you the kook never considers, right? A third of households is a lot of households. Um, then he said, a little bit later, he, he tweeted this. RBA fact, 
The overall share of borrowers with a loan six or more times their income and a buffer of less than one month of minimum repayments has declined since the beginning of the pandemic to just below 1%. The media is focusing on this tiny cohort, so it seems. So in other words, the pe- there's only 1% of borrowers would be at risk of interest rates rising, just 1%. Now, of course... You had a loan six times the medium income, Robbie. I mean, <laughs> whew, three would be okay. Historically, it's always been okay, but not six. And that's at a, yeah, that's the minimum. Yeah, the, the multiple. But 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 go back to what Martin was saying in that clip with the Today Show, uh, Craig. Mm. It's not about yeah yeah. The RBA has these figures that show only one percent of households have less than a month in advance on their mortgage. But Martin's point is it's not about those figures. It's what's, what's happening in the cash flow in the rest of the household in order to make sure that, make happens. Sure that happens. And they are stretched to the limit. Martin talked you know, giving up dental, giving up buying kids' clothes, etc. This sort of thing, right? Um, that doesn't show up in, in the Reserve Bank's data. And, and um, anyway, we'll continue on the theme. So when Martin goes on the Today Show and, and he was on Channel 10 the night before and ABC, etc., then the kook launched into these attacks. So this is, these are the attacks um, on Martin. Uh, this was on the Wednesday. Any media using DFA, Digital Finance Analytics, as a source of information on mortgage stress has the same credibility as those using Craig Kelly on the benefits to humans of ivermectin as a cure for COVID. It's flawed in the extreme. Ask for the source of the information and you'll know never to use it. 52,000 person... Household survey, Robbie. I mean, that's more accurate than the department, the, the ABS. Ab- of course. On unemployment. I mean, so, yeah, that is the source. This it's is not a statistical measure. It's a qualitative measure of asking people what's going on. And that's the biggest difference. Statistics mean nothing. Yep. But, you know, Martin's survey of 52,000 households is pinpointing and directly correlating what's going on with reality. And that's the problem. Statistics don't necessarily mean reality. And he doesn't like the reality impinging on his bubble because this is the, this is one of the guys who spruit the bubble for 20 years and there's a bubble in his head and he doesn't like it being popped. So um, then he made this video. Now, he actually put out a tweet as well, but I'll, instead of reading the tweet, it goes with it. We, maybe we can play them both at the same time. But watch what he says here, um, which is a, another dig at Martin, without, not by name. Okay, time for a bit of a sober talk here that uh, uh, we're in the early stages of an interest rate hiking cycle for sure. There's more rate hikes to come. But when we look at the ability of the household sector to deal with these interest rate hikes, they've never, I repeat, never been in a better position to do it. Um, A lot of people have been riding the interest rate cutting cycle down until the end of last year or early this year. So they're well ahead in their repayments. Uh, Unemployment's low, so everybody... Uh, who has a mortgage, probably has a job, so their ability to make these high repayments is also well entrenched. Uh, I look at the RBA and APRA data. Um, financial stress has never been lower, according to the data that they published just recently. So um, when I see this uh, manufactured data about financial stress or people saying, oh, how can people possibly afford extra repayments on their very large mortgages? It is a load of rubbish. It's, it's completely made up sort of numbers. And I prefer to trust the bank 
Reserve Bank an appredator rather than some snake oil salesperson trying to get a bit of a media profile uh, when I'm looking at some of the financial risks that are out there. So again, uh, I think that the economy is really well positioned to deal with these rate hikes. We need these rate hikes. Don't forget that we've got inflation lifting uh, quite aggressively over the next couple of quarters. So the RBA will have to do more. They told us that yesterday. I look at the futures market. Yep. A lot more rate hikes are being priced in over the next 12 to 18 months. Yep, they're going to be delivered as well because this inflation problem is only tackled by the central bank and the government to some extent tightening policy. Tightening policy means more interest rates. So instead of devoting a small amount to mortgage repayments and you go out and spend a whole lot on fun things to do and businesses hike their selling prices, you stop that latter point, you scale back your spending in those nice to do things and you allocate that money to higher repayments. You'll manage, you'll be fine, most people will be. And I think that's the critical takeaway from when we look at how the household sector is going with this rate hiking cycle, we'll be fine. So basically Craig, he's calling Martin North a snake oil salesman uh, looking for media attention, right? Now this is nasty hysterical stuff. Why? Right? Then he goes, I have to read this other tweet he did. I've got a little economic policy secret for you. Higher interest rates reduce cost of living pressures. <laughs> they do not add to financial pain. They actually ease the pain. Now, you're uh, a veteran of the 80s, Craig. Tell, uh, tell me, how, relate to that for me. Well, I was paying 18.5% interest rate, Robbie, and the mortgage I had 15% at that time. 15%. And you, you must have been pain free oh, by his I was definition. Totally pain, most of our income, and we weren't, you know, we were in small business at the time. We had to pay an enormous percentage of our income in these high interest charges. So I don't know how the heck, you know, it's supposed to reduce the cost of living. Precious, it's a complete bloody opposite. Especially when, and, and this 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 bears mentioning, Craig. They have um, so the classical economists are taught this thing where. Um, inflation is all driven by increasing the money supply, and that's controlled by the, the, the willingness of people to borrow at the interest rates um, that are available, right? Mm. So if you lower interest rates, more people will borrow, there's more money supply, more inflation if you raise interest rates. So that's, that's the, the, the problem with economists, they do everything on paper. Because what we're dealing with now is, yes, there's been a massive increase in the money supply around the world for many, many years since the global financial crisis, but you've got other problems that are, that are much more acute. The iceberg lettuce that was selling for $12 yesterday in Australia is not caused by bank lending for mortgages. That's caused by the floods in Queensland and the supply chains, right? And there's lots of other supply chain problems around the world as well. That, none of that's going to get solved by the interest rates going up. That's going to be made worse. Yet he is so in his bubble, right? I don't know. Just accept it on paper, people. This is going to be better for you. Well... You know, that reminded me of Big Brother, right? War is, mm -hmm. war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. You know, just, it's newspeak, it's the opposite. So here's the thing, Craig, moving on. This is hysterical. What is it about Martin's data that they're so afraid of? And this brings us to something that we have been monitoring for close time, to 20 yeah. years, right? We, like, like Martin North, before the 2008 GFC, we were, we were predicting a crash then. Um, there's a clue here. The bank shares this week fell uh, on average 10%. The big four banks, their shares fell 10%. Um, because anyone who's paid attention to this area would have to be worried, is this a miscalculation? 
right? Could we be pushing households to the brink that lead to a default rate, a rise in the default rate on mortgages? Because Australians historically don't default on mortgages. It's the most extreme thing in the world. We're not like the culture in America. But we're not unbreakable, mm. right? And this is, this is what this, all this combining at once, inflation, the cost of living explosion and interest rates, by a reserve bank that's ignoring that stuff, right, can, can make it all happen at once. And it, and it reminded me, Craig, before the global financial crisis, one of the things that the, the financial authorities then did was discount the danger of derivatives, mm-hmm. right? And we were warning about these things called derivatives, and they were saying, no, 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 nothing to worry about. They'll net out to zero. There's no, there's no systemic risk there. They let Lehman Brothers collapse. Within minutes, it had triggered a bigger collapse of this institution called AIG and literally blew up the world because of its derivatives, right? And that's an example of when financial authorities make decisions where they're ignoring the dangers. They discount the dangers. Is this another case of that? Um, the trigger... For that global financial crisis in 2008, consider this, was the jump in subprime mortgage defaults in 2007. And people may not, may not may find this a little bit hard to believe. The subprime mortgage defaults in America in 2007 peaked at a rate, the highest they got to was 9.3% of subprime mortgages defaulted. 9 point, uh, 9.3%. Mm. Now, in 2007, in Australia, our bank regulator, APRA, there was a secret report. It, was, it came out in 2016. There was a secret report, uh, internal report in APRA on Australia's mortgage market. And that predicted that we were on track for a default rate of 7.5%, which is like usually the default rate is way below a 1%, right? These are big jumps. Mm. Um, and that could trigger a recession. But think about those numbers, point. Uh, three, 7.5, 9.3 melted down America, 7.5 was forecast in Australia. Um, it didn't happen because of the bailouts intervened at the same time. Martin North's data shows you we're talking about a pool of people before interest rate rises that is 43% of total mortgages. 43%. So only, only a quarter of those need to default, need to be pushed to the wall and default where you could have similar carnage inside our financial system that triggered the global financial system um, crash in America. And of course, the big one, and this is why we've always focused on it, Craig, the danger is not just for households, it's for the banks. Because our banks are the most exposed to mortgages in the world. Far more, ex- the, 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 the banks in America that went under, the most they got to was about 40% of their lending was for mortgages. Ours are all over 65% is for mortgages. They don't do anything else. This is, their, this is their entire business model. Also, they are dependent on overseas short-term borrowing, like over $400 billion on 90 days. They've got to roll over every three months. They're dependent on that. And if they start getting a wave of defaults in Australia, their overseas creditors will play hardball and start calling in that money and they won't be able to pony it up, right? Um, around the same time, look around the world. There's all these... Uh, uh, Danger warnings coming out because of everything that's happening at once, including the, the Ukraine situation. Uh, people like Wall Street's top executives are making the rounds at financial conferences last week. JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon said that, quote, a hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. Goldman Sachs president John Waldron um, called the overlapping shocks to the system unprecedented. 
Uh, regional uh, US Bank CEO Bill Demchak said he thought a recession was unavoidable. This is the context in which all this is happening. And then this is what I wanted you to comment on in, in terms of all this. You know, as you, as you jumped to earlier, the real world out there is the families in these, in these mortgages, right? In the communities too. In the communities, right? They are the ones that, like we're having this discussion and, you know, I think we can reveal, Craig, you and I are debt free, right? Mm. So we, you know, we feel for the people that are, we know there's a, pan, there's, there's a lot of anxiety out there. We're not trying to minimise anxiety. We feel that anxiety. We empathise with it. But I want to remind people what, what happened in July 2019. The then housing minister, Michael Sucker, act, actually actively, even aggressively urged young Australians to jump into the market, to borrow money, right? He said, quote, if you've got an opportunity to get a foot in the market before, then you should take it. Given I think the market is starting to move. People who buy now, I don't think, will regret it at all. A re-elected Morrison government has put a lot more confidence into the market. We're seeing green shoots in Melbourne and Sydney in the last quarter. And I think with low interest rates, with APRA reducing serviceability buffers, all those factors combined to confirm that optimism. So we had a government actually herding people into this market. And it's, it's the people who borrowed from that time, Craig, 2019 to now, who are trapped in this because they're the most likely to go under. They're called the marginal borrowers. And the former governor of the Reserve Bank today said, or yesterday, Ian McFarlane said, the Reserve Bank cannot make a decision worried about the marginal borrowers. They're going to go under, right? Mm. Well, there's a human cost to that. And that's what we need to talk about. My first question to you is, should Michael Sucker be charged for giving financial advice without a licence? Well, that's pretty good. Pretty good. Clear advice, I won't say good advice, Roy, but what really, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, oh, really interesting, you know, because in 2005, we got a letter from ASIC. We did. Because, and they, they accused us of giving financial advice without a licence because we were talking about the, the huge derivatives bubble, which is not quite as, was not quite as huge as it is today, that the banks were engaged in, into, in making themselves super profitable. And we were just saying, people, you've got to look at this issue of the derivatives, and this is what's going on here, and all of a sudden we get, please explain why you're giving financial advice. Now, we weren't even talking about <laughs> mortgages, you know. We weren't talking about green shoots. We weren't talking about low interest rates. We, we were warning people against the risks in the system. We were, yeah, we were advising people about there's a, there's a huge danger here of, the, of these derivatives in the system. So on that basis, where's ASIC? Why haven't they sent a, a please explain to, 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 to this former minister uh, about financial advice because the issue here Robbie is that bubbles upon bubbles upon bubbles in the financial housing sector have created the point that you've got literally tens if not hundreds of thousands of young families I suspect young families yep. in the mortgage market that are facing a collapse in their ability to pay the mortgages as as um, as uh, you know Martin North has warned what do those people do right they're they're part of communities. You've got kids in school. Well, remember, Sucker's scheme, Sucker and Morrison's scheme, was to allow them to buy a house with 5% deposit, not 20%, and the government would guarantee the, um, the other 15%, right? So they would already be being wiped out of their equity now, Craig. Yeah. And, and, and they would have borrowed at fixed interest to start with, you know, two or three years of fixed interest. 
that's now expiring and they're greeted by this massive jump in interest rates. Caveat emptor, Robbie, caveat emptor, buy beware, right? So, but hang on a sec. That has a backfiring effect because if you've got large numbers of people defaulting on their mortgage, the entire economy will yeah. come down, not just those individual buyers. So there's a real narrow, narrowness of, um, of thinking here. Not just it'll bring down the entire economy, but it'll have massive effects on the community with communities within Australia as a whole. So this is not some small issue of just, and this is why we, for example, have written legislation for a debt moratorium to keep people in their homes yeah. and to protect small business, uh, particularly farmers, from being uh, you know, sold up uh, due to desperate banks. Now we've got that legislation in, in place, or at least uh, written, because I, we, we could see what years ago, we actually wrote this legislation back prior to the last global financial crisis in 2008 because we could see the same thing happening here. Now, they propped that bubble up from low interest rates from first home, uh, homeowners schemes and so forth, but there's not much else they can do, Robbie, given that they've now... And the other thing is that uh, we wrote an alert service, which I thought was very, very interesting, uh, a comment, I think it was a long tweet, um, by Senator Gerard Rennick on the role of the Reserve Bank. Facebook post, yeah. Oh, it was a Facebook post, was it? Okay. No government should ever pay another entity for the use of its own currency, which we've published in our Australian Alert Service this week, which is fascinating because this is a Liberal Party yep. senator saying that the RB, uh, RBA should no longer be independent. Uh, independent of government policy. Now, this goes back into the 1930s with the government's uh, 1933, I think it was, Banking Royal Commission, which looked at the causes of the Great Depression. And it was Chifley's government, or the, this, this inquiry that uh, Chifley was on, the, the, the then the up-and-coming Treasurer of, uh, of Australia and then Prime Minister, that basically pointed to the issue that when you have private institutions like banks dictating government policy, you'll never have the general welfare of the, or the interests of the community put forward because they're always going to be looking to protect their own selfish interests. And what they do in a, Chifley went through, in a boom, they just load it up, right, and, and um, try and capitalise on the boom as much as possible, create a lot of debt, and then in a bust, they foreclose on everybody, cut off credit to everybody so to make sure they survive, and everyone's immiserated, right? And then the government has to step in. This is what they call the, the privatisation of profits and the socialisation of losses. Mm. And that's why Chifley said we need a national bank. <laughs> and, and the problem with the RBA is encouraging the banks to borrow overseas. Yep. So if we're building our infrastructure overseas, a large proportion of the revenue that comes out of our economy goes straight overseas. It doesn't stay within the economy. The RBA could become like a, a national bank for our economy, fund local infrastructure instead of forcing banks or you know, promoting banks to go overseas. Fascinating article by uh, Gerard Rennick. And, 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 and it's consistent with what we've been saying for, for 30 years. Well, no, exactly, which is why we published it. Um, there's a th what you've referred to with the, the, you know, that the kook wanted to ignore, only one-third of households have mortgages. No, yeah, everyone has a house. They, ha they think they have a, a financial value on that house. That can all just vaporise, right? And then what collapses is what they call the wealth effect in Australia because since we have an economy that moved away from being based on industry, um, the reason the government's built up the property bubbles because that drove all this construction 
and then against the higher values, it was easier to borrow, and that drove a lot of spending, and that's called the wealth effect. Mm. That, can, that is, can all implode. And so what Jared Rennick's talking about and what we've advocated is, well, we say, let's keep, we've got to make sure we keep everyone in their home so we don't have a US-style mass foreclosure like they did after the, the global financial crisis over there, where all the banks who got bailed out then went and threw 12 million people out of their homes, right? And I'll give another plug. The movie 99 Homes um, illustrates this in Florida, and it's, it's definitely worth watching. Um, so we've got to make sure that doesn't happen, but we've got to shift the economy away from this, the property bubble wealth effect to being based on production again. And that starts with investing in infrastructure, um, and that can be funded through the Reserve Bank. That's what Jared Rennick said, right? Yes. Which brings us, Craig, to uh, the next item we're going to talk about because there's a great demand for infrastructure investment out there, right? There would actually be lots of jobs in it, um, which is what people are going to need in this period um, if we actually invested in it. So... Who's keeping your local bridge from collapsing? And what we're going to go through is Melissa Harrison wrote an excellent um, article in this week's Australian Alert Service, uh, The Dire State of Local Government Infrastructure Assets. And it's based on the Australian Local Government Association's National State of the Assets Report 2021. Um, be prepared to be concerned. And, and so local government infrastructure assets, Craig, covers roads, bridges, stormwater systems, waste management infrastructure and airports, right, local airports. So here are the headlines you need to know. One third of all local government infrastructure is not in good condition. 10% is poor to very poor. And in regional councils, regional remote councils, that's 20% is poor to very poor condition, right? The replacement cost of that infrastructure is $51 billion. And that word replacement is quite important there because when it's in poor to very poor condition, it probably does require replacing, right? $51 billion nationwide, where is that in anyone's budget? That's, that's the question, right? 26% of total infrastructure assets are in fair condition, but that means they've got to be maintained with defects requiring regular or significant maintenance to reinstate the service that infrastructure has an estimated replacement cost of 106 to 138 billion dollars. The problem for local councils, Craig, is they are increasingly responsible for more and more of this, but they've got less and less income to do it with, right? Local governments are responsible for, for about 77% of the length of the national roads network. Think about that, 77% is the responsibility of local government. 8% of sealed roads and 14% of unsealed roads are in poor condition. The replacement cost of these roads is $17.8 billion. Now bridges. And this is the one that, you know... It's a bit of a worry. You don't just walk, you, it's, this is not just a pothole, right? Bridges have a higher consequence of failure if they're not maintained prom properly. The report noted the councils are responsible for 22,000 bridges many of which are, quote, old and do not meet the requirements of the modern transport fleet, meaning big, heavy trucks. 5% mm. of concrete bridges worth, and that collectively 1.2 billion, are in poor condition. 18% of timber bridges are in poor condition. They're the ones I'd worry about. <laughs> uh, that, they, that's, that's $310 million. Many bridges are, quote, old and not fit for purpose. 
And then I, this is an interesting quote because an interesting concept I want people to understand. The local government association observed that grant funding, quote, appears to be allocated to structures on higher order roads, um, while many local government timber bridges are located on low order roads, having many first and last mile implications if left in a poor state of disrepair. And first and last mile refers to when you have a farm or a, or a, um, a factory or something that builds, you know, or a machine, machinery factory, whatever, um, it, it, it has its product, it has its crop, it has its, builds a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, the first mile is getting it to the major road, right? The last mile is getting it from the major road or the major train line to their customer. And those roads are the, the, the lower order roads. Right? Those, those, those first and last mile roads, they're the lower order roads. But you can see how important they are because yeah. the, the industries of Australia cannot function if they are not maintained. Mm. And these are the ones local council is responsible for and there's no money um, to maintain them. So if those bridges go out, you can't get your product off the farm exactly. to market. No, exactly. And let alone if there's some poor bugger on there. Yeah. Um, Local government is responsible for about a third of Australia's non-financial infrastructure assets, but only collects 3.5% of tax revenue. By contrast, the federal government is responsible for one-tenth of infrastructure assets, yet yet collects 82% of tax revenue. And one of the things that happened under Morrison is they halved the amount of the local government's share of Commonwealth tax revenue from 1% to half a percent. They used to to give in grants 1% of total tax revenue, then they cut it down to half a percent. Right, um, and then on top of that, you've got you know the the um, declining industries, declining rate values, you know all this sort of stuff. It's a it's a um, uh, it, it's a it's an unsolvable problem for local government. But this is not something that this the, the implications are not of this are not the, the the credit rating of local government. The implications of this are the viability of our infrastructure that we use. Right, people use all around Australia. This is why we need a public bank, Craig. Yep, a public post office bank will fix this problem. You'll have many, many billions of dollars invested from Australian people into a public government-guaranteed bank. You then, logo, then can invest that money in the sense of loaning it out, providing credit to local councils to fix their infrastructure at low interest rates. So you have people's own money here in Australia being used to fund infrastructure in their local area. Yep. And Robbie, this is a complete win-win situation to borrow a phrase from some very famous Chinese person for our community. But it cuts the private banks out of the equation and that's why they don't like it. And you know, this is what we've been promoting with the idea of a public post office bank. It's why it's absolutely vital. It does begin to solve the issue of how do you provide finance to fund this crucial economic infrastructure. So it's a a, a no-brainer, but it affects the private banking system. And this brings us back to this whole issue of the concept of what is the role of government, particularly the Reserve Bank? Is it a bank for the private bankers? Should it remain that way? This is why we need a national bank that's government-owned for for the government guarantees, but to also provide the necessary credit inside Australia's economy. Yep. I mean, oh, we, we, we constantly refer to this, the, the, the principle of what happened in Japan, where Japan has, you know, the government has an enormous amount of debt, enormous amount of debt, but all that debt's owed to Japanese. It's yep. not overseas debt. 
whereas 65% plus of our debt is overseas borrowing. I mean, the figures that we had in there, I think was $8 billion, uh, I think Gerard Rennick referred to it. Yeah, in 85, Australian banks had $8 billion in foreign debt. By 2008, they had $800 billion in foreign debt. So we're beholden to foreign yep. banks and so forth. That's completely unnecessary, but it's typical of this banker's dictatorship that we've talked about before, where debt is used as an economic war warfare tool to enslave populations and take over and uh, you know mine the real wealth that actually should belong to the people. Because because it, it's not it's not debt that's actually um, gone that's been incurred to to build productive assets in no, Australia. It's it's gambling debts essentially that yeah. they've got overseas. We need you don't need to go overseas. You can create your own credit here against your country's own assets, own national wealth, and we need to make sure it goes into these long term productive areas. And only the government will do it. Yep. So if you needed a, if you need an example of how urgent it is, um, that's why we wrote this article on the uh, the local government uh, infrastructure assets. All right. Well, on that note, Craig, thanks very much for yeah, thanks, joining us this week on the Citizens Report. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in and tune in next week for more. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.